Hello and welcome to the Modern Britain podcast, a student show where I, Harry Taufan, discuss the state of progressive politics in the UK today. Today, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Ryan Wayne, political director at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Ryan is right at the forefront of progressive politics. In our conversation today, we got through a number of topics, discussing all sorts from the culture wars and Brexit to the Labour Party in Ukraine. We actually had a couple of tech issues during our conversation, which comes with this sort of recording. Um, and luckily, Ryan was generous enough to speak on a couple of occasions. So you might find that some of these issues sort themselves out about halfway through. Anyway, I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you do too. Thank you very much for listening. Ryan Wayne, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Uh, pleasure to be here, Harry. Look forward to our conversation. Great. So I've, I've been really looking forward to our conversation. I think... I think you have a really firm grip on where you believe progressive politics should be headed. I and mean, I think for anyone who that's their politics, that's a, that's a really important issue moving forward. Um, and I just thought we could start the conversation with a quick diagnosis by yourself of where progressive politics has gone wrong in the previous sort of five to 10 years. Sure. And it's funny that you talk about uh, having a, a firm grip, because for me, the, the world is ever changing, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks. And uh, a firm grip is hard to come by, but I've definitely got a, a view on where I think progressive politics needs to be heading. But let me start by talking mm-hmm. about two things, really, which make the difference between winning and losing and elections. And they are the demand and supply side of progressive politics. So by demand, I mean, do the electorate even want this? Do the electorate even want what is on offer from progressive politics? And then supply side is the progressive political parties, the ideas that we put on offer, how we respond to the challenges of our day. And I actually think where we're at in the UK is that the demand for progressive politics is there. And that's a really positive, reassuring place to start. So from polling that we've done, and we've had a few reports come out on this, we know that in the UK, running right through the whole country is a a progressive streak. People want to make their lives better, they want to make the country better, and crucially, they want to make other people's lives better as well. That is the perfect ingredients for a progressive offering. So, if the demand's there, that then leaves us to question, why aren't progressives winning every election? And they're not. We only have to look at the last few election results to see that not only aren't we winning elections, but our vote share is going down. So for me, there's a huge problem on the supply side. And I think there's two elements to this. One, I think progressive politics on the supply side in the last few elections has been seen as economically incompetent. And when it comes to putting a vote in a ballot box for the next government, competence really matters, especially competence when it comes to how you spend taxpayers' money, how you spend your hard-earned cash. And I don't think in this country people quite have trust and confidence yet in the Labour Party's ability to spend taxpayers' money. And then the other challenge is one of relevance and priorities. Again, when you're going to the ballot box and you're deciding who the next government should be, you want to make sure that they have at least similar priorities or they care about the things that matter to you and your life and again I think there's been a challenge on the supply side of progressive politics which has made the gulf between 
what voters care about and what progressives present themselves as caring about. I think it made that gulf widen and as a result, voters see Labour Party in particular as becoming irrelevant to their concerns. So it's a, it's a recipe for electoral travesty, incompetence and irrelevance. But, and this is really important for this podcast, for your listeners and for people like you and I, the demand is there. So whilst I, I think progressive politics has gone awry in the last decade and over the last few years, I also think there's a huge opportunity for us ahead, but that requires some important lessons to be heeded and some changes to be made in how we operate. That It was very interesting when you were talking about the current Labour Party that you used the word yet in terms of getting there with the progressive message. Um, and, you know, given you work with Sir Tony Blair, the last elected Labour Prime Minister, what have you made of Keir's refocus slowly towards that, that progressive politics that we're looking for? Honestly, I think it's been really impressive. I think Keir is coming mm-hmm. from such a low base and I, I, I can't express enough and use the the gravity of the challenge that Keir Starmer faced when he became Labour Party leader in terms of the turnaround job. And the fact that we are now ahead in the polls and looking to the next election where Labour is even in contention, I think is a testament to Keir, especially given the challenge that he's faced in having to navigate being the leader of an opposition where you're not naturally given a hearing during the, the pandemic. And obviously now with a, with a new crisis unfolding in Ukraine, I think he's done a really good job and he's moved in the right direction. But it's one thing being on the, the road to recovery. So when you look at just how long that road is, and there's always a, a sense that you, you want to keep your foot on the, the accelerator pedal. And I think Kia knows that, but I, I think we all have responsibility to... To, to almost hold him to account on that and say, go as fast as we can. And, and, and in return, you have the support of progressives. So we will be with you every step of the way. What that means in practice is he's took the fight on anti-Semitism and he's drawn a clear red line. I think that's exactly the right and necessary approach, not just from a winning election perspective, but from a, from a moral perspective. But now, to ready ourselves in the next election, we've got to do the hard work on the ideas and policies that are going to respond to the transformative decade that we're in and going to speak to the, the challenges of people's lives. So going back to that priorities question again. And also, we've got to make sure that we are looking and remaining competent and credible on things like how we are going to spend taxpayers' money. So that's really important as well for, for Keir to keep an eye on. Tricky issues like the culture wars and where Labour fits on that, they are all potential banana skins and the things that the Tories will throw at us in the build-up to the next election, hoping that we slip on them. Uh, And again, I think Keir's got to be very shrewd in how he navigates and, and operates in that regard. Definitely. And in fact, that was actually what I was going to ask about you next, because it is sort of the issue that progressive politics perhaps doesn't really want to talk about but like you said, could be the banana skin for um, any campaign that's going into the election. Um, and you sort of said there that that has to be successfully navigated. 
do you do you have any idea about how that can be done is it is it just keeping an open discussion um and being the party that represents you know a a, a large range of ideas on these issues or how how can we do that that that's definitely part of it we need to embrace and be comfortable with different perspectives and we need to mm. recognize the debate and be able to challenge sometimes if that can cause us to feel a little bit uncomfortable at times. That is key yeah. to making progress. It always has been as part of it's part of human history. It's a key part of human history. It's part of progressive history as well, progressive political history. So I think you're right in terms of embracing debate, but the, looking at this as an election, we, we can't just wish the cultural war challenges away. My boss always says, and he's right about this, that going into an election, you can choose your answers, but you can't choose the questions. And so Labour is going to be asked time and time again, whether we like it or not, what is a woman? And that is a hugely tricky question that I don't think any of us would have even tried to contemplate an answer to a few years back because we wouldn't have needed to, to even answer it or think about it. But these culture war issues aren't going away anytime soon. So you're right. We need to make sure that we start off by recognising that it's progressive to embrace debate and to champion debate. And we definitely don't want to be in a space where we're cancelling people or calling for people to be shut down because of their viewpoints on sensitive subjects. Obviously, if that strays into hate speech or in calling for, for, for violence or, or physical harm, then that's a different matter. But when someone is expressing a perspective or an idea, we need to not just not shut that down, but, but champion that and celebrate their right to do it. And we also need to recognise that progress and common sense go hand in hand as well. I really do believe that across Britain, there is a, a progressive streak. And so some of the cultural issues where we're, where we're talking about progression and moving things forward and making lives better, particularly for the most vulnerable in society. I actually think there is instinctively broad-brushed support amongst the electorate for those changes and that progress to be made. But where we'll lose voters is if we start to run up against common sense. So in the issue around trans rights, for example, making it not okay to talk about being a woman and having experiences of being a woman and also not recognising that there is a difference between biological sex and gender. They're all actually common sense issues and when you speak to trans activists or you speak to feminists and when you speak to voters you actually find broad brushed agreement. I think we actually agree on a lot more than we disagree on but I do think we need to inject more empathy into this debate and also the progressive side. We need to cherish and champion common sense as well as the, the progressive issues at their core. And I do think we can find a way forward and we can find answers to those tricky questions that, whether we like it or not, are going to be thrown at us in the build-up to the next electorate. And all this, by the way, is done with victory in mind. We want to get back into the business of winning elections, of restoring progressives back into power so that we can make lives better for the most vulnerable in society for those who we really do need to protect and whose rights we need to champion. So this was the point in our first conversation where the tech issues just became too much. 
our conversation continues about a week later and hopefully you can see some of those problems are now resolved. So in our previous conversation, we'd been discussing how Labour might navigate the so-called culture wars. And we spoke a bit about taking sort of the common sense position um, and keeping the conversation open. Um, as we were just saying um, before we started recording, it, the next week, it seemed almost coincidentally, Labour were thrown with every question they could be about uh, how to define a woman. Um, and there were quite a few different responses across Labour. So streeting was pretty biologically blunt about it. Um, but Angela Rayner and Starmer were a bit more cautious. Um, and I just wondered, did you catch that on the news? And what, what did you think of uh, Labour's sort of continuity on that issue or position on that, that issue? Yeah, I, I did see it. And I think it's interesting that you say biologically blunt, because I don't think you can be biologically blunt, because biology is a it's a statement of fact. And, and the key thing for me is that Labour, Labour starts with that statement of fact, that you know, a person's sex is determined by biology at birth but also recognises that often the gender is the same, but not always, and that some men become women and some men become men, but also appealing to what I think is a, a progressive streak that runs right through Britain, which is everyone has the right to live the life they want to, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the people want it in their faces or even for it to be talked about as an issue. But I think recognising that statement of fact at the beginning, there is a distinction between sex and gender, and also committing to certain sex-based rights and protections, and even going further and making sure that we make a firm commitment to being free to talk about what it is to be a woman by sex, so talking about things like having a period and menopause, as well as offering those protections, is absolutely critical. But at the same time, I do think there is a progressive streak that runs through Britain. I think you can appeal to that. And I think it's, a, it's, it's our values on our side of the fence, right? We, we believe that people should be able to live the life that they want to live. I don't think any of those things are incompatible. I do think we should be making calls to calm the debate down. And we, we seem to exist in a world dominated by the loudest, often angriest voices on, on this issue, but also on many other issues. And, and people are entitled to their views, particularly on sensitive issues like this, without having accusations of phobia held at them. Um, but I think ultimately we should want to live in a world where women and trans women are supported, heard, listened to, looked after, but ultimately they can live the life that they want to. Honestly, I think you find very few people in Britain disagreeing with that, um, but we've got to calm it down as a debate. And I also think we've got to take it away from the spotlight because often the people we're talking about those very vulnerable people they don't want to be the subject of mainstream political debate and for voters they want the Labour Party to return to talking about the challenges that they're facing on a daily basis and their priorities. Yes yeah, so I, I just want to pick up on that that final point you just made there about that's that's what they want Labour to be talking about because I saw Alistair Campbell this week speaking on uh, Instagram live and he was saying that part of the reason that Labour uh, lamented with these questions so often is because that's what happens when you don't have a real sense of what you want to say um, and sort of mm. went on to be maybe just a bit critical about that there might be a lack of campaigns um, going on in within Labour at the moment. And I know we were, we were sort of pretty complimentary about Starmer's progress in our last conversation, um, but I just wondered what you thought of, of this assessment. I, th I think it's a fair assessment. I, I mean, Keir has been 
up against it, right? When if you were to put together a, a set of scenarios that a leader of a new party, sorry, that a leader of a party who had faced uh, one of its main challenges being that it drifted even further away from the electorate, then a global pandemic and a war on the scale we've seen in Ukraine pretty challenging right in order to get a, a hearing. So I think some of it is about airtime being stifled and the topic of conversation not necessarily being one that that Labour is, is able to say anything different and, and nor should it say from, from the government. But I think politics is all about making the most when you do get the touch of the ball. And I think Labour has struggled with that. And what it is really missing more than anything is is a plan. I think when you have a, a plan, you are able to bring your activists and members and MPs along with you. Remember, that's been one of the challenges around some of the culture war debates, that fragmentation of voices. But also, you're able to respond and be in the debate when we're talking about things like the cost of living crisis and critically be able to put forward alternatives and just give glimpses where you can and where you get where you where, when you hold the mic give glimpses and show to the, the electorate and voters what it is that you'd be able to deliver for them and i think right i don't think we've seen enough of that from the labor party it's a real shame because it's it's not like there are aren't people in the party now are able to to do it that said you know, we are still a little while away from a general election the cost of living crisis is only going to get worse sadly but Labour's opportunities are going to get bigger and I think now if we can move on from the, the culture war challenges and have clear robust answers to them then Labour can be in a position where it starts setting out its agenda on education, on healthcare, how we shift from you know, curing people and getting people into hospitals to preventative healthcare that takes people out of hospitals and provides care in the community and an education system that makes takes account of some of the technological advances and also on some of the tricky issues that are actually really hanging the government up in terms of their responses to some of the challenges of our time, for example, around Brexit, how we can build stronger relations with the EU. It doesn't mean rejoining the European Union, but Labour should certainly have a plan for what it would do in government in order to feed the appetite both on a European side and our domestic side now to build those closer trading relationships and security relationships. Isn't the risk, though, obviously you mentioned Ukraine there and obviously Starmer also had to deal with Covid, which was an incredibly, you know, a, a very difficult situation to be in opposition to. Um, but why do you think Labour have to wait for these moments? Because, you know, even whilst Ukraine is the Ukraine situation is unfolding, you see um, I've seen today Rishi Sunak's announced that he's asked the Royal Mint to create uh, an NFT to be issued by the summer, which, to be honest, is probably as a single example, not a very important situation, like, you know, example. But I think it just shows holding two ideas in your head at the same time. What, do, do you think it, it could be risky having this sort of attitude that Labour have to wait for these opportunities? Why, why can't they talk, be talking about it now as well as Ukraine? No, I, I, think, I think you're right. I, I guess more in my mind, I was thinking of when these issues come about, something like Ukraine, it, it rightly dominates the, the agenda for a period of time. But also from a, a, a national security perspective, I think it's absolutely essential for any sensible leader on either side of the political fence to, to try and put politics behind them, join forces and show that they are on the same page and that Britain is united in this response. But like you say, that's that's time limited. And of course, Labour should be putting things out on a 
on a regular basis now. But all of that has got to be anchored, I think, in a plan which is sits behind a very clear narrative and vision for Britain. And those things take time to get to. What you don't want to do is create a situation where you know you feel obliged to just throw things out on a daily basis and hope that they add up to some sort of broader vision or plan. You need to start with with the latter uh, in order to get to sensible, coherent policy agenda and alternative for government. But of course, they should and could be doing that now. So uh, I, I share your assessment of that. I really do. Okay, and you were you were talking about Europe as well, um, and the how how Labour might frame that in the future. And I, I was watching um, your conversation with Sir Vince Cable at the Oxford Union um, the other week, and I, I saw you you at the time you were sceptical about the prospect of a second referendum due to the divisions it might reopen. I think history probably proved you right on that one. <laughs> and I was just wondering, moving into the next election, you I, you have said before that talking about rejoining the EU or divisive arguments at that that sort of nature can take away from the fact that we do we can forge stronger relations with Europe without straying into those sorts of debates um so I've just wondered um what should Labour be talking about in regards to Europe well again I think it's about appealing to the common sense of the British people which is very real and very there and also speaking to fact again so the fact is that geographically they are our closest neighbour the fact is that for us to have any sort of say on global affairs for example ukraine we need to be coordinating with our nearest neighbors as a, as a minimum but also from a common sense perspective for us to return to prosperity for britain to grow again for wages to go up we need to increase trade and we know that brexit and how it's been handled by this government has really hampered and harmed that and so it makes complete sense. And I don't think you find many people disagree with that, maybe a couple of ideologues on either side, that now is the time for Britain to truly move on and move forward from Brexit, reach out and work with our European neighbours and set out a common agenda. And that covers security, but it also needs to cover trade. From a political perspective, I think the is a challenge when it comes to things like free movement but i think there's also now an opportunity to carve out an alternative way forward there one that allows you to have a stronger trade relationship with europe but without accepting uh, free movement which i think probably is a step too far post brexit for britain to return to but it's also crucial on the progressive side of the fence that we don't rub it in people's faces around the decision to, to vote for brexit it was absolutely fine how people voted in the referendum it was done with the greatest of intentions i think brexit's been implemented badly by the government i think the majority the british people agree but i still do think there is there is definitely a way forward that doesn't mean reversing the referendum doesn't mean wrapping yourself in an eu flag uh, but does allow for a, a closer trade relationship with our nearest geographical partners i also think by the way as travel reopens and as we enter summer holidays, I just think the very fact that people standing in different passport queues is just going to open our eyes up to some of the things that, we, that we've that we given up, but which we can get back with a few trades here and there. And I do think we can forge a, a stronger relationship somewhere down the line that, that really does speak to the, the common sense 
broad brushed instincts of, of Britain, which I think are largely very sensible and very progressive. And whilst we're talking about common sense, obviously that, that issue of COVID that you're talking about as the travel rules relax, um, the Institute's produced a number of publications throughout the pandemic, such as uh, Living with COVID and Staying Ahead of the COVID Curve. Um, and I just think moving forward, what do you think are the remaining key issues to address to be prepared for another spike in cases? Or what more could we be the, the government be doing right now around COVID? Well, it's a great question because there's a... There's a sense at times, especially now, that I think people have wished COVID away. But the reality is that, that it hasn't gone away. And certainly the vaccines are working and work incredibly effectively, especially against hospitalisation and death. And also, I think it's true that the Omicron variant is, whilst more transmissible, much less severe than previous variants. So that is a... That is, that is a a position that's much stronger, much better than we've had in the last two years when we look at how the framing of, of how we need to respond to, to COVID and the pandemic. But what we can't do is just hope it never comes back and not respond to it in any shape or form. I think we need to look at fourth doses and I know it's going to be painful for people to hear that because surely, surely, surely this is over. But the, the vaccines have been critical and are proven critical in our response. And fourth doses to those who need it most, i.e. Uh, those who are vulnerable underlying conditions or so over the age of 50, I think we should be looking to roll those out and not just making them available, but really actively uh, communicating that people can access these and, and, and really making it clear that people should access these and, and utilise them. And then I think it's a case of preparedness. The worst thing that could happen is all of the progress that we've made, the fact that normality, I think we're very, 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 very close to returning to normality. We're not quite there, but we're, we're almost there. The fact that it is so close, the worst thing that we could do is throw all of that away with a, a variant that, that comes down the line and proves to be more severe and potentially even more transmissible than Omicron. I just think that the collective despair uh, that you tear of that happens would it would drown out everything and so preparedness shouldn't go off the table 12 months ago uh, as britain was heading up to to lead the g7 in cornwall prepared was the order of the day there was even talk of preparedness institute being set up in britain and i think we need to hold the government to account on that because it's largely disappeared but actually for for covid but also for future public health and global health concerns I think we need to make sure that we've got the right institutions in place and that we're coordinating globally around uh, sharing genomic information, that we're sequencing tests and that we are always investing in research and development that allow us to make vaccines and therapeutics at speed and at scale when needed so we never repeat the mistakes of this pandemic again. But that requires leadership. I think we saw it for a few days in Cornwall but since then, it's largely disappeared. It would be such a shame of all of the lives lost in this pandemic. It's been a real tragedy for the most part that we, we throw away that one glimpse of the silver lining, which is the world coming together under Britain's leadership. It's a big opportunity for Britain on a, on a global scale here to, to set out how we can properly respond to future pandemics and build the institutions necessary that allow us to do that.
thought whilst we're talking about the uh, the countries around the world coming together, I could not ask you about about what's going on in Ukraine specifically. Um, and I think generally, you know, the British response has been pretty popular. Generally, there's been a few there's been a few issues here and there, but I would say generally that that's how it seemed. Do you think there's sort of any common sense policy decisions around uh, around Ukraine that that we were missing or that Labour could be pushing for? Is there anything yet to be done that could still be done? No, I, I, I think there's largely the response has been sensible and correct and just and i think supporting the ukrainians in the defense of their homelands has been critical and that involves the supply of weapons and training but stopping short of things like uh anything that leads to a, a, a direct attack on russia mean Russian aircraft each other. I think that's been sensible and I'm, I'm, I'm really proud actually the Labour Party for embracing its its roots which are internationalists and which is around the the creation of uh, NATO. So that's been really positive. I do think there is more that can be done from a global perspective on communications into Russia. Not necessarily a Labour thing to push but you know Labour should never shy away from putting important ideas and initiatives on the table but for me we we have to face the reality that we're probably going to only see an end to the bloodshed with some sort of negotiated settlement between russia and ukraine and things like neutrality need to be on the table for that i think zelensky has demonstrated an appetite and leadership and get to that and, and rightly so put some red lines on the table but what Rarely we need, and the, and the greatest pressure valve that we can screw on Putin is his domestic audience, his people in Russia. And so the economic sanctions, I think, have been powerful, and it's right that we squeeze those who, who derive their power from Putin. But also we should look at how we reach beyond Putin's new iron care and communicate directly with Russian people. And this requires, I think, a globally coordinated effort. I'm not saying that any one country or government does this. In fact, I think that would deter and may undermine trust. But what we what we should be looking at is some sort of new global organization that is able to share fact with the Russian people and make them wake up to the realities of the war that's been done in their name and the, the terrible atrocities that have been committed on Putin's watch. And it's only then I think that we'll start to see attitude inside Russia really turn away from Putin and from the Putin regime and that in turn forcing Putin to get to the negotiating table and arrive there recognizing that he needs to reach a peace settlement he needs to down arms and he needs to stop the bloodshed in Russia uh, sorry in Ukraine as much as anyone else and I think as well, what you were saying there is it's equally applicable to Ukraine, isn't it? Because their their communications have been so effective during the war. It's been one of the things that has been so impressive um, from their side is the, the way that they've they've handled their communications with the world. It's it's been really really effective. Um, and and specific specifically on Labour, then um, obviously Kiev was uh, really quite firm with the with the left of the party in terms of uh, the stop the war. Um, 
the stop the war statement that was put out. Um, and, I, and I just wondered um, in terms of Labour's position on that, did you think that was the correct decision to ask them to withdraw their signatures from the from the statement? Or, or what do you make of the argument that even under Blair, you know, the, the stop the war positions were tolerated and a broad church is, is needed for Labour to win? Which which side do you do you go with on that one? I think Keir called is completely right. I think they they crossed a line and you don't belong in the Labour Party if you see the atrocities unfolding in Ukraine and then find yourself signing a letter that essentially really commits to absolving Russia of any responsibility or blame from that. So I think it was awfully timed and I think, to be honest, Axe Heart was an, an awful message and I'm glad that their time is up. I think the the last four weeks, the, the war in Russia have revealed that aspect of left-wing politics for what it is, which is introspective, self-centred, and completely absent of any values, um, certainly the values that anyone who calls themselves progressive should hold dear. So I think it's completely the right decision. Definitely. I think it's it's also shown on the other side, hasn't it? The right. I mean, some of some of Nigel Farage's comments have been even 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 for him pretty pretty surprising. I think we're we're just about out of time. Um, I've really really appreciated speaking to you. I've just I've just thought I'd finish by asking maybe the most important question of the day. Um, you're you're a big Liverpool fan. Do you think you're winning the league now, or is is is, is it still cities? You know what? I feel really confident this season. I never say that, and this is the first time I've got on record. I feel I feel good and I think this is I think this is Liverpool's year where we get to celebrate a title win properly and I can't wait to be up in Liverpool with my friends and family, maybe a couple of beers in, watching Liverpool parade through the streets with that, that elusive Premier League trophy. We were robbed of a celebration during COVID. I think this is this is our season. It's it's totally emotional.